Hey friends, I'm Brad Livingston, lead pastor here at Transformation Church. I want to personally welcome you to our podcast. At TC, we exist to see people transformed from who they are to who God wants them to be. So no matter where you are on your faith journey, I hope today's message inspires you to take one step closer to Christ. Man, let's give it up for Jesus one more time all across this place. He's so good. We're so excited that you guys are here. Man, we can't wait to see what God is doing. I know some of you are here for the first time. Some of you are here to see people get baptized. Some of you are here to see people um, getting their child dedicated, next service. Man, whatever it is, man, we're just, we're so excited. We're glad that you're here. Uh, and so we're going to jump straight into our, par- our next part of the Sushi Sex and Subtitles series. And I know it's been helpful for you. Excuse my wardrobe change. My man Jeffrey hit me with a whole tidal wave there uh, during baptisms. Uh, and that's why we keep extra clothes around. So don't worry about it, brother. Wherever you're at, I can't see you. So wherever you're at, it's, it's all good. Uh, but so, yeah, man, let's jump straight into what we have today because we're going to talk about sex. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and just break the awkwardness. Can we do that? Turn to your neighbor and say sex. Unless you're a teenager, you're like, no, I'm not. I'm just not doing that. So, <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about sex, but differently than, than, than probably what you've uh, either built up in your own mind or uh, maybe if you have a teenager in the room right now, that the terror that is gripping your heart, we're going to deal with it a little differently. Uh, but here's the reason why. <clears throat> and, and in the last part of the series, we actually sent the teenagers out for one of, one of our talks about sex. Um, but we intentionally wanted to keep them in this week because... Uh, I believe that the church historically has just done a very bad job talking about this uh, because uh, I, I do want you to understand that sex is not something that needs to be hidden. Like God made it and he made it good. So sex is not something that needs to be hidden. It just needs to be dealt with appropriately. And we need to be explaining it to our teenagers. And we're going to kind of get into that. And, and quite frankly, now that, I'm in my, now that I'm in my 30s, I'm finding out that we need to be explaining it to our teenagers and our 20-somethings and our 30-somethings and our 50-somethings and uh, so on and so forth. So, but sex, as part of our lives, when experienced according to God's plan, leads to a beautiful, flourishing life. And so just to come out of the gate, I wanted to get, put some things in front of you in regards to sex. Now, hopefully you have your notes with you uh, that you got maybe on the way in the door. They're going to put some stuff on the screen. Feel free to take all the notes you want, take pictures of it, post it on Instagram, tag us with it, whatever. Like just, I hope that you follow along because I believe today will be helpful for all of us. And I do mean all of us. If you're married, I think this is going to be helpful for you. If you're single, this is going to be helpful for you. If you're a teenager, this is going to be helpful for you. If you're an adult, this is going to be helpful for you. If you're engaged, this is going to be helpful for you. Um, Because I believe when we can really start understanding what sex is, we can really start seeing it on a healthy level. So a few things that that God says about sex. First, sex is good. All right? Genesis 2, uh, 25, Proverbs 5. 18 through 19, even gives us like a very X-rated description of like how one person sees his bride, right? So like, if you don't believe me, you can read it. I'm not reading it in here. This is controversial enough. Okay, so Hebrews 13, 4 um, deals with it as well. The next thing that it says is that husbands and wives should love to have sex with their spouse. I know some of you are like, this is not, I'm not here for this at all. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4, uh, a husband is to give to his wife her conjugal rights, uh, and likewise, that, that those feelings should be reciprocated. Um, sex is not a tool of manipulation, but is an offering of affection. Married couples should have sex often, um, in Jesus' name. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, um, I told you, we, gotta, we have to laugh at some point, otherwise this is just weird. Okay, so... 
my wife has been cringing for two weeks as we've been talking about sex. She's like, don't say anything ridiculous, okay? I'm like, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, Proverbs 5.15, both of things talk about uh, consistently and, and doing it for the good of your marriage. All right? I even, we, we literally, in moments of counseling married couples, and I think married couples need to hear this. When we're counseling married couples, oftentimes, when we're not dealing with abuse and some of those things, one of the first things we tell them is like, you need to have sex. And they give us that look like, I'm sorry, you need to stay out of that part of our marriage. But what we don't realize is because God designed it, when we start to withhold it, we are actually manipulating ourselves and our spouse and letting the enemy come into a space that he shouldn't be in. And so it, that is actually God's design. Um, we're supposed to have kids, but sex is not just about kids. Uh, and that's laid out in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, Genesis 2, 24. Um, and this one, I think the church doesn't deal with well enough that singleness and celibacy is to be celebrated too. Um, first Corinthians seven, seven, Paul actually wishes more people would join the journey of celibacy uh, in singleness. And so that's a thing that I don't think we talk about very much. And then sex, like every other good thing God has given us has boundaries. And that's a little bit about what we're going to deal with today. Sex, like every other good thing God has given us has boundaries and it's a big list. First Corinthians six, 18, Hebrews 13, four. I mean, they're all on the screen. You can take a picture of them if you want. Um, but that's kind of where I want to set you guys up for today. So let's catch up from last week. Last week we talked about how Jesus in his perfection died for us so that the areas that we struggle in don't have to be the weight of condemnation that we wear. All right. So you don't have to sit condemned, full of shame over a struggle that may exist in your life. When we come to Jesus, grace is offered. And now that we are in that grace and we're pursuing after Jesus, the struggle that you have does not identify you. The struggle that you have does not become your identity. The struggle becomes something that Jesus has taken upon himself. But we see in Romans 7 what Paul says, and he says this. We, again, we went over it last week. You can go watch this whole sermon. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. And he's talking about this sin that he's wrestling with. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do that anyways. Anybody ever found yourself in that space? Like you woke up that day, you're like, I'm not going to do this thing. And then come noon, right? You didn't cuss six people out. You know what I'm saying? Like just everyone that laughed right now, y'all want to avoid them in traffic. I'm just letting you know right now. Okay. Those aren't, those aren't the ones. All right. You don't want that smoke. Okay. Anyways, but. Why is this the truth? And we explained this last week. Genesis 2, 16. I'm, I'm just catching you up, okay? So just give me a couple more minutes. Genesis 2, uh, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So going back to the garden with Adam and Eve. And God creates this beautiful space for them. He said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree. Say any tree. Turn to your neighbor and say any tree. You're watching a line. Look at your cat and say, any tree. <laughs> All right. Any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then in Genesis 3, we read this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And from that moment, we've been subject to the sinful nature that is inside of all of us. 
So, and I proved it last week, how I said that we are born inherently evil in our nature. And I had someone ask me afterwards, they were like, are you sure about that? And I was like, go to the nursery right now. <laughs> Find a two-year-old and take their toy from them and watch what happens. Complete meltdown. We've all seen the toddler laid out in the floor of a grocery store because they didn't get their Fruit Loops, right? Like, some of you are like, that was mine. That was my toddler, actually. Uh, we've all seen it. Why? Because inside of all of us is the desire to want what someone tells us we can't have. What is inside of all of us is to rebel and push back against the thing that someone says is good for us to pursue the thing we ultimately want, isn't it? You can be honest today. Like, so, so that's inside of all of us. So then we come to Jesus, and that's what we talked about last week, that we can take that struggle, we can take that sin, we can take that nature, we turn it over to Jesus and say, I need you to help me Deliver me from the shame and the penalty of my sin. And now as I walk this journey of being tempted, because even Paul said in Romans 7, you're going to be tempted. As I walk this journey of temptation, I'm going to rest in the graceful arms of a Savior that made it to where condemnation doesn't have to be part of my life anymore. Can we say thank you, Jesus, for that, right? So, so that's the catch-up. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. Because let's talk about for a second what God wants for you. Turn to your neighbor and say what God wants. What God wants for you, okay? Uh, again, look at your cat. Those of you guys that are watching online, which cats are demonic, so I don't know why you have one of those. You need to move it out of your house, okay? In Jesus' name. Okay, so I have biblical proof. You guys want, you want biblical proof? Cats are demonic? This has nothing to do with the series. Cats are rebellious. Rebellion is witchcraft. Witchcraft is demonic, okay? It's all in the Bible. You guys can go read it. All right, it's all there. So moving on. Nothing to do with the series. The first thing I want you to understand today is God wants you to flourish, God wants you to flourish. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying he wants you to have a yacht or uh, a mansion or $6 million in your bank account. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he wants you to flourish. He wants you to live a life of flourishing. Matter of fact, John 10.10 says it like this. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you would have life, that they would have life. And then have life to the full. And, and those two meanings are, I pray that they would have eternal life. So I pray that they would have life, eternal life. But then that they would have this life that you still have to live for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. I pray that you would have that to the fullest. So Jesus actually comes on the scene and there's two ways that he does that. The first way is I want you to understand that God establishes boundaries to do that. And the first way he establishes boundaries is to keep you connected. God establishes boundaries to keep you connected. How many have ever found yourself feeling far from God? And if we were honest, most of the time when we feel far from God, it's not because God left, it's because we changed something about ourselves. Our actions, our intentions, the way we pursue God, what we've allowed to become part of our life, that changed and now we feel far from God. But he establishes boundaries to keep us connected. Say boundaries. He establishes boundaries to keep us connected. John, John 15, 5 through 6, Jesus is talking and he says it like this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and that word abides means rests in, stays connected to, pulls their resources from. Whoever abides in me and I in him 
He it is that bears much fruit. That means your life becomes fruitful. It becomes a flourishing life. From apart from me, you can do nothing. And I believe that's where some of you have found yourselves. You've, you've allowed distance to get between you and God, and you're feeling like it doesn't matter what you put your hand to, it doesn't matter how you pursue a relationship, it doesn't matter how you're doing at work, none of it seems like it's flourishing. And it's not flourishing because you were built to be connected to the Savior that got you here. So when we disconnect from him, we can't flourish. It goes on to say, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And if you're doing notes, I would encourage you to circle that word withers or underline it, right? Write it on your kid's forehead. See it every day. Whatever you need to do, right? So, but it withers and the branches are then gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And some of your lives feel like dry, desolate, burning places. And for some of you, you've allowed the sin of your life to cross the boundaries of connection So now your sin is causing you to feel disconnected from God. And then when you feel disconnected, you become dry and brittle and useless. And you're wondering why it feels like you keep getting thrown into fire. You feel that way because you disconnected from the source that can help you flourish. And I'm here to tell you today that that flourishing, that's God's plan for you. Again, I'm not necessarily saying like all, it's all about prosperity. Understand the difference between blessing and flourishing. I'm talking about a life where you wake up every day ready to live that life. When you look in the mirror, you're ready to take on the world. You can love people better. You can love your spouse better. You can love what you do better. You can find more fulfillment in it. Why? Because that's the way God designed us. For many of us, we've allowed our desires that we know are opposed to the word of God to draw us away from God himself. And if you've, and then we find ourselves withering. But for some of you, you've even started to find yourself looking at the world and the world seems colorless lately. Like it, it seems bland. You wake up, you go to work, you come home, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to work, you come home, you go to sleep. And there's this routine you found yourself in and, and there's no genuine experience of joy. But when you look at your life, not a lot has changed. You're going to the same job you were going to when you had joy. You're coming to the same home you were coming to when you had joy. You're sleeping next to the same spouse if you're married or getting in the same bed that you were getting in when you had joy. So what has changed? Well, for many of you, you've allowed, and and I'm guilty of this myself, you've allowed your connection to the God that helps you flourish to be severed. And what God wants is to say, listen, get back in the boundaries. For some of you, If you would just institute what we're going to talk about today with your porn habit, you would instantly recognize your relationship with God gets reconnected. If you would allow what we're going to talk about today to sever that uh, that inappropriate relationship with a coworker, you would then find yourself right back where you're supposed to be and flourishing with God. And so my encouragement to you today is not that you would feel condemned or judged or placed a burden on, but that you would see, see that there is a liberation and a freedom that's available to you in Jesus. I remember going to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and, and 
we were there, we went into the caverns. And if you guys ever been to Gatlinburg, you know what I'm talking about. You, you go into these caves underground and, and you get down there and it's like, oh, this could cave in at any second. I'm very uncomfortable. So, uh, so you go underground and you guys have all seen the movies with like the spikes in the ceiling because the erosion over, you know, years and decades and centuries and millennia has caused the erosion. And now there's these caves that are underground. And I remember walking through those caves one day with the tour guide, uh, a little concerned, you know, because we were just going further and further in, and there was no end. And so, you know what I mean? So anyway, so uh, we were getting in there, and, and he said something, and I remembered it recently. He said, you know, it's very interesting that this has been happening for hundreds and thousands of years. These caves have been being developed by erosion. He said, one day someone's going to come along, and they're going to try to put a shopping mall here or a house And as soon as they do, it's going to cave in. He said, now, more than likely an engineer will find that out ahead of time. But if they did try to, it would just cave in. And it made me start thinking that for some of us, we never made a conscious decision to just run away from God. But one day we decided to sleep with someone we weren't married to. And and, And then we did it again. Or maybe we went and we looked at something on our computer or on our cell phone when our spouse was asleep. And then we did it again. And it hasn't been this giant choice to say, I don't want you, God, anymore, and to turn and walk away. It's this slow erosion of conviction in our life. That slowly by slowly, we lost the ability to hear God. And now our spirit looks like big empty caves with nothing on the inside, but it still looks real pretty on the surface. And this is my fear for some of you that one day you're going to try to build a life on top of that emptiness and it's going to cave in. And so my hope for you is that you would see that God doesn't want that for you. He does want you to flourish, but part of flourishing is living in the boundaries which create the opportunity to remain connected so that you can continue to be full and filled with who God is in your life. So the next thing we want to understand is that God is not an angry dictator trying to just ruin all your fun, God actually established boundaries to keep you protected. So he wants to keep you connected, but he also wants to keep you protected. The reason he comes in and says, hey, listen, you shouldn't be doing this is because he wants to protect us because part of our protection leads to our flourishing. And so if we'll embrace the protection, we can embrace the flourishing, right? But the thing is, is why is it, none of us, I'll put it this way, none of us like to hear someone say no, do we, when we want something? Like, I, I want this. And someone's like, no, you can't have that. Our instant reaction is that of the two-year-old in the nursery, isn't it? But God, I want it. Like, we, we instantly go to that place. doesn't matter if you're 2, 22, 52, or 102. Like, part of us wants what we want and doesn't care that there's boundaries that may be separating us from it. The thing is, is we don't mind certain boundaries, though. For example, those stripes on the road are extremely helpful. <laughs> now, the people in Pensacola don't seem to be bothered by whether what they say or what they're meant to do. But by and large, they're helpful. How many of you are glad that God put boundaries on the solar system? We can all agree that that's helpful. How many of you are glad that the Bible even says that God put boundaries on the ocean? It says it can only come this far. Like, we don't mind certain boundaries. The problem is, at the end of the day, we just don't want boundaries on us. 
Now, I have good news for you. If you're a parent in here, raise your hand. Parents, where are you at? Right. So we've done something for you. Uh, in TC Kids right now, uh, we have monster energy drinks that we're giving all your kids on the way out the door. You see that reaction? That was a joke, by the way. Breathe easy. <laughs> Parents are like, nope, 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 nope. They're going to grandma's today. All right, so but uh, you see that reaction? Why did you have that reaction? Because we all know that's not a good thing. Now, we could very easily recognize that though they may like it, to them it may taste good, it may be something they want. At the end of the day, as a parent or just as an adult, saying, I know you want that, but it's just not good for you right now. We have no problem seeing why boundaries are important until they're placed on us. And so what happens is we come and, and, and we see God a certain way because of these boundaries he's put on us. Like he's some sort of dictator or evil controller. What if God's just trying to protect you from the thing you're not supposed to have right now? What if God's boundaries caused us to start seeing him as a loving father, not an evil dictator? I put this in your notes, but complete fullness is never found in complete freeness. Complete fullness is never found in complete freeness. And I can prove that to you. Uh, many of you may know someone like this in your own personal life, but we definitely can see this uh, with celebrities. How many can think of a rich celebrity right now that at 18 years old was just wilding out? The Paris Hiltons and the Kardashians and the whatevers, right? Like, we can all think of that. When they had no boundaries and their life became miserable. Now, they may be wealthy, but they don't love the life that they have. And even if they do, they love the materials part about it, but they've all acknowledged that part of it feels empty. Why? Because complete freedom doesn't lead to fullness, or as we put it in your notes, complete fullness is never found in complete freedom. It is the boundaries that God creates for us that lets us run free within the space he's given us to run in. But when we have complete freedom, we're constantly pursuing something we can't actually find because there's no joy in it. But our joy found in God changes that. So no one would suggest that uh, if you have a child or you have a niece or a nephew, that grabbing their hand and standing at the side of the road and saying, you see that squirrel that got ran over right there? That could be you. <laughs> Maybe not the best tactic to use, right? But, but, but no one would suggest that telling your kid not to run into the street after the ball that rolled over there is a bad idea. Because what we're trying to do is love them and protect them. And hear me, some of us, some of you, some of everyone in this room to a degree is trying to pursue something that God's guarding you from. And the issue is sex. And this is why sex is so hard in this space. God created it. He made it good. He made it pleasurable. And he made it for us. He just told us you got to wait and stay in the boundaries of having it. And that's the contention. Listen, it's not very hard for any of us to be like, yeah, don't think we should shoot guns at people. Like, in the street. You know what I mean? Like, so, like, it's not hard for us to go like, yeah, I don't think we should beat people up in the parking lot. Why? There's a moral obligation for that to be like, yeah, I don't think we should do that. But sex is actually good. And so we have to draw the line between, yes, I'm supposed to have it, 
I'm just supposed to have it here. And that boundary that separates us is what leads us to flourishing. And the other thing we have to realize in your notes is that God knows better for us than we do. God knows better for us than we do. How many of you can think of one thing, just one thing right now, that if it had gone the way you told God it was supposed to, it would have wrecked you? Just one, right? Like some of us are like, I got 10 now, and I remember all her names. <laughs> just kidding, that was a joke. Ha! Okay, so <laughs> Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 puts it like this. This is talking about God knowing better for us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That means he's doing, seeing, and executing things that you can't. And so God comes on the scene to help us with that. And one of the ways quickly that I think that becomes so evident is when we recognize that when we have sex with someone, there's what some people, you called it a soul tie. When I was growing up, they called it soul ties. You can, we can use whatever term you want. When you sleep with someone, the Bible says the two become one flesh. Now, not to get weird, but God has designed the male and the female that when that happens, the body parts necessary become one flesh, right? So uh, he designed it that way. But what we don't read in the scripture, at least on the surface, is that it's not just that they physically become one, but they spiritually become one. And how that manifests itself for the sake of time, I'm not going to pull anyone on stage today. <laughs> I want to like, thank God. All right, so, but, uh, uh, how that manifests itself is if we have Bill here and we have Susan here, and if your name is Bill or Susan, I did not mean to offend you. Okay, that was just random names. Bill uh, is here and doesn't really love Jesus. Maybe he's aware of God, but he doesn't love him. And Susan is over here passionate about the Lord, just pursuing, going after him. Yes, prayer life, Bible, the whole thing, just in love with Jesus and they have sex, the spiritual oppression that exists in this person by default becomes part of this person. And so you actually, I want you to think of it as if Bill has an elastic armband around him and he wants to go after God, but there's a spiritual thing holding him down. And when Susan becomes one flesh and one spirit with Bill, she takes on that same elastic armband. And what once was so free to go after God with lifted hands and a pursuing heart is now bound. And for some of you, you've become bound not just by one person, but maybe multiple people. The beauty in Jesus is he can actually free you from everything that binds you and give you a fresh start. But hear me, even after you get the fresh start, there's still an opportunity to put a bondage back on, which is why God says, I need this boundary. Now, the difference here is, is that when you're married, you go after together. We're going to talk about that in a second. But when we're married, it changes that landscape. Uh, I want you to see this. When it comes to premarital sex, without the unity of marriage, the spiritual bondage goes from a unified pursuit to an isolated torment that damages your identity, erodes your conviction, diminishes your ability to hear God, and traps you in a cycle of sin and shame. So that's essentially what's happening there when we pursue our own desires. But God has come that we would be set free. Say free. 
And one time, stay free. free. Say it to your dog now. You kicked your cat out. Perfect. All right, stay free. All right, good. So we, we are free. Because I want you to understand this. And this is, this is just part of it. That all actions actually have spiritual ramifications. All physical actions have spiritual ramifications. Sex binds together spiritually. Lifting hands creates a spiritual surrender. That's why we do it in worship. We lift our hands. You're creating spiritual surrender, right? Singing in worship creates a spiritual connection to God. Using your words actually confesses and declares something that actually sets us free. There's always a spiritual ramification for the physical decisions that we make. And we need to become aware of that. So how do I shift the approach? We're going to move quickly because I'm a little behind. So how do I shift the approach? Turn to your and say, how do I shift it? How do I shift the approach? Well, we want to give those to you quickly, all right? The first thing, and these are very straightforward, okay? So these aren't going to be like super fluffy and like cute, all right? This is just going to be like, here it is, you're welcome, okay? Uh, one, don't play with your destruction. Don't play with your destruction. Colossians 3, 5 through 10, when he's talking about the thing that's in our life that shouldn't be there, this is how he explains it. Put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Notice how he didn't say, like, put it in a closet until a convenient time. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. He says this, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is, get this, being renewed in knowledge. And the image of its creator. In other words, you're being made new in an understanding of who you should be pursuing versus what you used to pursue. Right? And for some of you, I want you to understand this because you've been wrestling with your temptation and and the sin in your life. And I want you to grab a hold of this. Your temptation is not your identification. But when we come to Christ, your identification will help you overcome every temptation. So who we are in God changes that. Number two, quickly, fix your eyes on your delight. Fix your eyes on your delight. I'll explain that. We'll go back to Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, this actually comes before the put to death part, all right? So I want to do it in order for you. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. Say above. Where Christ is, seating at the right hand of God. So your mind, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, right? You see, part of setting our minds on things above breaks our tendency to constantly be looking at what we can't have. I'll put it to you this way. Your boy's lost about 50 pounds-ish right now. Uh, and, and one of the ways that I've done that is stopping convincing myself not to have all the things that I want. So I don't sit around and I'm just like, can't have that pepperoni pizza from Sky's Pizza. Can't have that pepperoni from Sky's Pizza. Can't have, because guess what I'm going to have? That pepperoni pizza from Sky's Pizza, because it's cheesy and garlicky and heavenly goodness. Okay, but, so I, but if I sit and I'm constantly focused on these things, I'm eventually going to give in to these things. But when we put our mind and our hearts on things that are better, when I put my, my mind and my heart on the thing that I'm pursuing, more than I'm pursuing that, I'm pursuing being healthy and living longer for my wife and my church. 
So when I, when I put my eyes and my heart on the thing that's better than the short-term thing, I become more infatuated with the bigger thing, with the better thing, with the thing that's going to bring me more delight. And I become so enthralled with this that I don't even realize that I've already kind of forgotten about this. And that's the way that we should be approaching sin. Listen, I'm here to tell you right now that sin, approaching sin with the white-knuckled, tight-gripped, gritted teeth, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that, has never worked for anyone. Not even Paul in the Bible. So what do we have to do? We have to change our approach. The put to death actually comes after the set your mind. So putting it to death is easy when you set your mind on the things that are above. And so what we have to do is change it. It's not get yourself together so that you can pursue Jesus. It's Pursue Jesus so that you're getting yourself together. And he'll help you get yourself together. He'll help you deal with those things. And I just wanted to give you a a tip on how that could work. Because for some of us, that's a hard thing to do. For some of us, some of you, some of us, we have found ourselves only going to God when we need something from him. And only thanking God when big things happen, but not small things. So, like, we watch a wreck happen right in front of us, and we go, thank God that wasn't me, right? Like that's, that's the extent of some of our prayer lives, okay? Or your coworker is about to catch those hands, and you're like, in Jesus' name, you're going to have to calm me down, right? So, like, that's some of your prayer lives. I talk to your coworkers, okay? I know. I know all about it. All right, no, just kidding. Okay, but anyway, so, but what if, here's a question I have for you. What if... We were more grateful about the fact that everything we experience is a gift from God. So what if even when I sat down with that pepperoni pizza that I probably shouldn't have had, and I actually realized that God could have allowed us to be sustained with a cardboard-like tasteless substance, but he's actually being glorified in how good this is. Like when you eat the cheeseburger or the pizza or when you look at your child and you hold them, that God gave that to you. God gave you that, that baby. God gave, wait, what if you found great delight in the fact that when you walk through the door of your home, all of that exists because God said it would exist. Air conditioning in Jesus' name. right? Like so, like, what, what if we became more aware that God's glory can be easily identified in the very simplistic things that are around us every day? And what if we became more conscious to declare a thank you and a praise him about the small things in life? What if we did that so much that the porn habit or the sexual addiction or the temptation didn't even have room to start growing in our hearts? Because our minds were constantly fixed on what was above. It wouldn't be this tightened down approach to our Heavenly Father. It would be a very gracious and compelling way of saying, thank you for everything. And yeah, I want that thing. But until you say I'm supposed to have that thing, I just won't have that thing. But here's the deal. I'm so glad that I have something greater than that thing. And that is Jesus. I want you to understand something. Your temptation may never go away, but when it comes to God, we have a greater affection competing with those temptations. 
So he becomes greater than that. And then number three, as we wrap up today, I want to encourage you to pursue sexual integrity rather than pursuing sexual purity. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that purity is not part of that. But here's the way we've kind of grown up in church. Don't you dare do it. It's terrible, it's ugly, it's disgusting, it's filthy. Save that for the person you love. Okay, so that's been our approach to sex historically. Um, but then once you get married, do it all the time. Right? Which I'm totally fine with the second half of that. So whatever. But, but here's what I want you to understand because I, I, I want to help you with this. Purity is an action issue. Integrity is a heart issue. And when we declare, be pure, be pure, be pure, we have not addressed the fact that there's something in you that wants something more than it wants God. All we said is manage that until you can release the lion in your life. But once you've released it, never mind the fact that you still have these problems, and the church historically has not done well with saying, we need to deal, sex is not the problem. Same-sex attraction and homosexuality is not the problem. The fact that you want something more than you want God is the problem. The fact that you want to pursue your desires more than you want to pursue the instruction that he's given us, that's the problem. And if we can start dealing with the actual problem, we can actually start changing healthy behaviors. And so I'm going to give this to you very quickly about what that kind of looks like as we wrap up today, because I'm going to move quickly. Sex, uh, sex and sexual purity is a state of wrestling turmoil. So sexual purity, sex in a state of sexual purity is wrestling turmoil, the white-knuckled, gritted teeth, exhausted state of saying, no, you can't have it, you can't have it, you can't have it. One day you can, but you better not until then. The question is, where does that put all of our affection on sex? And it puts none of our affection on God. We're just hitting the pause button continually until we can get there. But guess what happens when you get married? You go into that marriage with the same heart problem that you had single. Being able to have sex doesn't change the fact that God is not the ruler of your life. So we put our affection there. But then when we have it, we realize that sex, that thing we were so much looking forward to, it doesn't meet the great expectation and anticipation we thought it would. So guess what happens? We start pursuing something else, thinking it's going to do that, which is why even some of you that are married, you're still struggling with porn and texting people you're not supposed to and flirting with those coworkers and doing all of that. The reason why that exists is because you thought marriage was going to fix your problem because you were taught purity and not integrity. But what if we would start understanding that our pursuit should be in a pursuit of integrity? And this is what that looks like. It's a state of rested temptation. I'm here to tell you right now, you're going to be tempted. Because the devil is wild at bringing stuff into our lives. A position of resisting temptation by looking to God as your ultimate delight. Pursuing him as your fulfillment and allowing him to be the placement of your affection. That's integrity. What if we fell so in love with Jesus that everything else failed in comparison? Uh, Jackie Hill Perry says this, 
all of our sin will be the death of us, not just our sexuality. Reality is our hearts have been the problem the entire time. My primary idol is not our sexuality or our primary idol. Our, uh, our primary idol is ourselves, me. I assume that my way and my feelings and my affections and my thoughts are wiser than the word of God. That's the problem. So what do we do? We pursue Jesus for wholeness. Now we're talking about sex. I want to give you these affirmations in close. To my friends who are contending or who are in contention with sexual behavior of any kind outside the boundaries of marriage, I want you to understand this. God's desire for you is not the suppression of your actions. God's desire for you is the transfer of your delight. Where your affection is placed on the one that created all of the things you get to find pleasure in, including sex, in the boundaries of marriage. To my friends who are in contention with your same-sex attraction and have found yourself in a war over how to be a straight Christian, God's desire for you is not heterosexuality. God's desire for you is that you would want him, even if knowing having him means embracing the boundaries he created that would hold you back from the desires that you actually have. To my friends who have found themselves contending with the possibility of singleness or late marriage, God's desire for you is not the identification of that thing that you are supposed to have, but in God's uh, but in God's cruelty has chosen to not place you in a relationship to experience the glory of it. No, God's desire for you is that all of your delight will be in him, in your relationship with him, in admiring the beauty of him, in the pursuit of him, and in the mercy of him, he will sustain and carry you and bring true fulfillment into the identity and desires of your life that no sexual activity or pursuit could ever replace. That is God's desire for us, that he would be everything to us. You will never find wholeness in anything more than God, because he made you for himself. If you're married, have sex. If you're single, wait to have sex. But however you may be tempted, know that whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're engaged, if God is our ultimate desire, then we can release the condemnation and the stress of temptation and pursue the things above, not the things below, because God is our ultimate delight. Let's pray today. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We thank you that there's a freedom to pursue you and to fall in love with you, that you could be our greatest delight. And Jesus, you went to the cross you paid for our sins, and why wouldn't you be our greatest delight? In you is a fresh start, and we love you for it. We give you our lives in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you need Jesus in your life very quickly and very easily, if you need Jesus, you need your sins to be forgiven, you need a fresh start, and you're ready for Jesus to become the Lord of your life. I want to invite you to say this prayer with me, and the whole church is going to pray with you, whether you're online or in the room. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me. I believe in you. I believe you died for me. I believe you paid for my sins. I give you my life. Give me a fresh start. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. CC, let's give it up all across this place for those that prayed that today. And we're so excited for you. We celebrate with you.